0: We've worked too hard for too long to let Peter Dutton and the Liberals and the Nationals in Queensland back in charge of energy policy. They recently talked about lifting the nuclear moratorium. The threat of nuclear power is a moratorium on your industry, your goals, your plans and puts its future in jeopardy. And we know the threat is real. The last time the Opposition was in power They tried to build a uranium mine in North
1: Queensland. Hello, and welcome to the Baseload podcast. My name is Ben Beattie, and I would welcome a uranium mine in Queensland. Our opening clip is Queensland Energy Minister Mick DeBrenny from his video address to a renewables industry backslapping event. Mr DeBrenny clearly doesn't mind sharing that he favours the renewables industry and that he will resist efforts to repeal the various legislation that bans nuclear power. Protectionism is just one of the rackets that enables the wind and solar industry to exist beyond the niche off-grid applications it would occupy in a sane world. Subsidies, targets, and a myriad of other incentives, both direct and implied, are necessary to sustain this otherwise unsustainable part-time electricity sector. Is Mr. DeBrenny on target here with his protectionist message? Is keeping nuclear out of our energy mix a winner with voters? David Spears on the ABC. We can bring you now the results of our online poll as well, and we asked, should Australia invest in nuclear power? Almost 16,000 of you responded, and here's how you voted. 61% of you say yes, 32% say no, and 7% are unsure. So there you go. There you go indeed. Why would a politician, a Cabinet Minister no less, be opposed to an industry that sustains jobs and investment, supply chains and service industries? Well, in case you hadn't heard, there's targets to meet.
0: The transition is about getting more renewables into the grid. That's the change that we need to make as a nation. That's the change that we're committed to
1: because, of course, it reduces pollution, but it also delivers cheaper energy into our homes and businesses. We know... Uh, Mr Speaker, that this transition isn't a vital one for Australia, it's a vital one for the
0: world, and I'm proud of the action we've taken.
1: Federal Environment Minister Tanya Plibersek towing the party line. I'm taking the liberty of applying the Hitchens razor to her comments on pollution. Christopher Hitchens, rest his iconoclastic soul, infamously said that what can be asserted without evidence can be dismissed without evidence. I'll go one step further and claim that Australia is one of the least polluted countries on the planet. You can apply your Hitchens razor to that if you like. Miss Plibersek's remaining two assertions are that renewables make energy cheaper and that Australia's take-up of renewables is vital to the world. I think Tanya is deluding herself here. The evidence to date is that a high wind and solar grid makes electricity more expensive. And this is true everywhere it is being tried. The Peterson Onge podcast.
2: With Germans now buying 5.3% less food than a year ago. It's one thing if people aren't taking vacations, but cutting back on food because you can't afford it has a certain third world vibe. Germany is just one example.
1: California, the UK, Spain, and Australia are all flogging themselves with self-imposed degrowth strategies that if taken to their ultimate conclusion, will surely end in civil unrest. For early examples of this, we can already see the Londoners destroying the ULES cameras that have been installed to deliberately find people in older cars traveling beyond their authorized zones. This is from the London Transport webpage. To help clear London's air, the ultra low emission zone, ULES, operates 24 hours a day, seven days a week, every day of the year, except Christmas day. The zone operates across all London boroughs and does not include the M25. If your vehicle does not meet the ULES emission standards and isn't exempt, you need to pay a £12.50 daily charge to drive within the zone. Petrol cars that meet the ULS standards are generally those first registered as new after 2005. Diesel cars that meet the standards are generally those first registered as new after September 2015. So, Londoners are already having their travel taxed, with the ultimate aim of forcing people into newer cars or to restrict their travel in order to meet emissions targets. As a result, many of these cameras have been
2: damaged by outraged Londoners. but have you seen tonight that what's happening to all those Eu cameras? Did you see in the London borough of Bromley and it's just been revealed just now that eighty one percent of those cameras have now been damaged and eighty one percent the London borough of Bromley, which is the biggest borough in uh, of the capital, and the other thing a third of all Oler's cameras have been damaged across London.
1: Australia is not subject to these ridiculous programs yet, but consider it for a moment. What would you do if you were fined or taxed for driving a particular vehicle beyond a certain threshold? That's London today. Alternatively, what if the government said that you couldn't fly certain routes anymore? Well, that's France today.
3: If the journey can be made by train in less than two and a half hours, the commercial flight is off the table. Christophe Bichu, junior minister of the Green Transition, tweeted that this was one more step towards the decarbonisation of our transport.
1: What if a government decided that people could no longer gather together or even stand up in a bar or a restaurant? What if borders were closed for so-called emergency reasons? What if you had your personal freedoms restricted for some arbitrary greater good, decided by people with no care or concern for your circumstances? What would you do?
2: People living in New
3: South Wales, they have New South Wales hospitals. In Queensland, we have Queensland hospitals for, for for our people.
1: Could that ever happen again? Could personal freedoms ever be restricted under the guise of a national emergency? Perhaps a so-called existential threat?
3: President Biden, in the face of these disasters, now facing new pressure to declare climate change a national emergency. It's something Democrats have been hoping for for a while, even before Congress passed that sweeping climate law last year. We are in an emergency, and it is a worldwide emergency. It didn't happen then, but activists hope it will now.
2: We're developing, through technology, an ability for consumers to measure their own carbon footprint. What does that mean? That's, where are they traveling? How are they traveling? What are they eating? What are they consuming on the platform? So, individual carbon footprint tracker. Mm. Stay tuned, we don't
0: have it operational yet, but this is something that we're working on.
1: So this all sounds extreme and impossible, and I hope it never happens, but there are people in our society that want this to happen. And to them, the existential threat they say is caused by humans is worth some sacrifice. Would lockdowns and other restrictions be applied immediately? Maybe. Maybe not. What about rationing? Richard Di Natale on Sky News in 2019 talking about the Australia Day blackouts in Melbourne. We're facing an existential threat as a species.
2: Can you imagine the sacrifices that people made during wartime being told, well, sorry, we're not prepared to make a sacrifice that means for two hours during the day we can't use a dishwasher. I mean, please spare me.
1: What I'm outlining here is the gradual reduction of liberties in the name of emissions reduction. We've already experienced never-before-seen draconian government measures in the name of a pandemic that turned out to be entirely unnecessary and ineffective. Is there anything indefensible in the face of an
2: existential threat? Well, the Premier's had to clarify controversial comments that Queensland hospitals are for Queenslanders after a young mother lost an unborn twin. I appreciate
1: that some people will take what I've said here and assign me a tin hat. That's okay, But let's just acknowledge one fundamental truth. My activism, if you want to call it that, is for greater personal freedom, less government intervention, more transparency. Now ask yourself... Do any of the big tech, big media, big pharma, big climate, big government types who all push the same narrative want the same things? Climate
2: change is a primary and economic security challenge for our region and an existential threat.
1: Being an engineer in the power and gas industries, I'm trained and experienced in identifying, calculating and mitigating risk. I say that adapting to net zero policies creates more risk than adapting to climate change. Firstly, risk is a function of consequence and likelihood. Consequence can be financial, physical, reputational, or could be in the form of a regulatory action or change in policy, or some other factor that has a real, measurable, quantifiable impact on your life or business. Likelihood is often less quantifiable and is related to the probability of the outcome occurring. Let's take an example. A scenario might be we achieve net zero. All these government policies come to fruition and we have net zero emissions globally. Now, what are the consequences of that? Well, I'd suggest that the science says that global warming will exceed 2 degrees C anyway. These policies, I suspect, and I believe, will result in degrowth, shortages, civil unrest, revolution general global carnage and loss of freedoms. The likelihood is, uh, is very high, I believe, and I've presented some examples in this episode. Let's take another scenario. Reject net zero. Carry on as we are. Cut off all the subsidies. Stop um, stop forcing the intermittents into the into the electricity grids. Stop um, favoring certain technologies for certain reasons. Uh, and just carry on, hopefully, improving the lives of more people. What are the consequences of this? Obviously, emissions will increase on the current trajectory. What will happen as a result? Mild warming. Increased food production. Fewer deaths from cold. Some thermal sea rise, yes. And some money spent on adaptation. For a good example, let's take a look at Holland. Um, you might have some money spent on irrigation, dams, and some storm surge prevention. And the likelihood of that, I think, is also very high. Um, A net benefit. So the argument comes down to what you think the consequences and likelihoods are for the outcomes applicable to each scenario. That's what the science is supposed to help inform. But the science has no idea, and the alarmism has been wrong every time for decades. The science, in its current form, cannot be trusted. The establishment cannot be trusted, (laughs) ever. Ever. The science and the establishment are running the same narrative, working together with the media and big tech. They like control. Big government works for them. Evidence to date says that globally, people are seeing less freedom and more government control. Democracies are being squeezed. Choices are being limited. I look ahead at the logical conclusion of these trends and find that the only sensible action is to rebel now, hard. I can only see negative outcomes for humans living under net zero policies. But I can see that governments will very much like the outcomes of net zero policies. No thanks. And of course, as soon as I uh, I sent most of this stuff up on Twitter, the very next thing that came up, thank you to the algorithm, was theguardian.com telling me that the Earth is well outside the safe operating space for humanity, scientists find.
2: Mega universe heat death. Global climate inferno. Super global spine chillingly hot. Stop using your stove, you capitalists.
1: You will die soon. <laughs> in, <laughs> in response to uh, Antonio Guterres' uh, ridiculous statements about global boiling, uh, Senator Alex Antic from South Australia read out his definitions of the next stage of climate alarmism in Parliament recently. I've been trying to work out how to uh, squeeze them into the podcast, but see if you can pick where they
2: come up.
3: Chris Bowen, welcome to 7.30.
2: Great to be back, Sarah.
3: If Australia does experience the weather patterns we're expecting this summer, are we going to see energy blackouts?
2: Uh, that is not my expectation, and we are working very hard to ensure our energy grid is as strong and secure as it should be. Two things there.
1: Fear-mongering about the weather. Okay, it's the ABC, standard fare. Secondly, the statement that investment in Australia's transmission grid is to improve reliability. Well, that's misinformation. The grid investment is not based on any metric of reliability. Albo's grid investment is purely to connect more renewables to reach his arbitrary renewable energy targets based on the Paris Agreement. The electricity supply is expected to become less reliable
2: as a result. Quite a big warning
3: from AEMO though, isn't it?
2: Uh, Well, this this, uh, electricity opportunity statement which is a standard piece of uh, the electricity infrastructure, is a reminder to everyone about where gaps exist.
1: NAMO's electricity statement of opportunities, the es is a, a 10-year reliability outlook for the market. Uh, does it identify gaps? Sure. Why would there be gaps? In the preamble to the 2023 es you can find this highlighted in large font. Reliability gaps are forecast in all mainland NEM regions when considering only those developments that meet AEMO's commitment criteria. And the chart that goes along with that is, uh, yeah, lots of lines going upwards, exceeding the reliability
2: standard threshold. As Daniel Westerman himself has said, if government programs and investment, federal and state, are implemented and implemented on the timetable that we've outlined, it will deal with the vast majority of pressure in the system. (laughs) Daniel Westerman on ABC Radio. We would see that um, investment over the last six months certainly hasn't been fast enough, but there is still time. uh, And what we really do need to do is to continue to invest in renewable energy, in firming, so batteries, pumped Mm. hydro and flexible gas generation, and get the transmission built. um, And there's over 10,000 kilometres of transmission that's been identified in that plan. Let me just talk about summer for a moment, you asked me, so let me deal with it. This summer will be very hot. Super global spine chillingly hot. No no question about it. We know El Nino is coming. Uh, We have a range of measures in place, Commonwealth and state, to ensure we are as prepared as we can be. Have been doing this, not this week or or last week, for Mm. months now. Mm. State ministers and I agreed to give um, AEMO $3 million more to have faster connections.
1: I'd very much appreciate it if somebody could please explain the link to me between building transmission
2: quicker and reducing the temperature of an Australian summer. We have a process to streamline connections. And this summer, there's 3.4 gigawatts more capacity in the system than there was last summer.
3: But we know that that equation is out of whack, isn't it? There's more energy going out than there is coming in at the moment. But just to be no, clear. No, that's not
2: right, Sarah. That traditionally is the case. Mm-hmm. That traditionally is the case. There were four gigawatts of dispatchable yes. power left the grid over the last decade, and one came, and in. One came in. We're fixing that. We are seeing very substantial. Inputs more, 3.4 gigawatts more this summer than last summer. We're turning around that problem that has existed in a policy failure of 10 years. We've been turning that around. If Mr.
1: Bowen is saying that 3.4 gigawatts of wind and solar is the equivalent of 3.4 gigawatts of baseload dispatchable or even gas or hydro, uh, yeah. I don't know what to say.
3: Let's just talk about this some of those, so people understand because if we have this combination of very high temperatures...
2: Global climate inferno.
3: Of ..lower wind and we've also got increasing problems with our unreliable generators, oh. doesn't that perfect storm create a circumstance that does make it unpredictable where we could see blackouts?
1: Yes, Sarah, that's exactly what it means. When it's very hot, it's typically not very windy and this happened in Melbourne in 2019 when the wind dropped more than expected, and as a result, there were rolling blackouts throughout Melbourne. ABC News website from the 25th of January 2019. The Australian energy market operator ordered load shedding across the grid earlier Friday in order to deal with the increased demand. Just after midday, AMO Chief Executive Officer Audrey Ziebelman said the power outages would affect about 60,000 customers for up to two hours. AMO later confirmed that more than 200,000 Victorian consumers had been impacted by the load shedding over the course
2: of the day. Well, I don't think we should, you know, rush to the blackout language because there's reliability figures which are very onerous. They should be. Mm. They're about 0.002% of the time, five hours over a 10-year period, except, for example, that there may be shortages, five hours over a 10-year period. OK, it's, it's true that most outages
1: are caused by the network, network failures. Yeah, a truck takes out a pole as a fire, some equipment fails. That's all pretty standard stuff. It's rare that a lack of supply will cause power outages. But the five hours he's talking about there, that's ninety per cent of the Australian population without power for five hours. Now that five hours would obviously be
2: accumulated over
1: the course of a year, not happen all at once.
2: But it bears thinking about. So let's just you know, accurately accurately yes. reflect what the AEMO report says. Mm. It is not, as some people have said today, you know, a stark warning that blackouts are inevitable. It's just not true. It's well, last and irresponsible, not no, by you but that. by other commentators. Let
3: me ask this. Is there, is there a case where you could start asking people to ration their electricity use Well, we have
2: existing schemes with energies. very large industry users mm. already where, you know, uh, AEMO us large industrial users to moderate the use at various times. That's always been the case. It was the case under the previous government, Is the case under us, and that will continue.
1: What the good minister is leaving out is that the plans for implementation of this massive amount of renewables, the, plan, the official plans by the Australian energy market operator and all the bureaucracies in the States, they all require what they call demand-side participation. And this when you read into it is actually widespread rationing. It is paying people not to use electricity. It's difficult to come up with a more effective method of reducing productivity in the economy
2: than paying people not to do something. The key is to turn around the, the ten years of policy dysfunction, where four gigawatts left and only one gigawatt came on, we're seeing that turned around, we've seen very big figures of renewable dispatchable approvals come through in the last quarter, uh, particularly around storage, um, But storage. aren't we in
3: a position, though, where we are seeing too few projects get to final investment decisions? I want to
2: see more of the pipeline reach, yep. final investment decision. Absolutely. I'm not mm. saying the job's done. Far mm. from it. Mm. We, are only, we have a big task ahead of us, to lift the renewables share of the, of the grid from uh, where it where it was when we came to office, around 33%, up to 82%. 82%.
1: Where on earth did that come from? Chris Bowen on the Renew a Comedy podcast in July 2023. Yeah. Let's get to that 82% renewable target. I mean, you describe it as a target. So I, mean, I think it originally was the sort of the modelling outcome from the AEMO integrated system plan. You said 82%. Yeah, let's go for that. There's been a bit of pushback recently um, and also sort of warnings that we might not be able to get there because there's so much to be done, transmission, building new wind and solar, getting everything in place. Would it help? A lot of people have suggested that maybe this should be a formalised target or maybe we should actually formalise a mechanism the same way we had the REC target to 2020. Um, I'm just
0: wondering if you can, um, have you been thinking about that, either of those options, making it a formal target, a legislated target, or creating a mechanism that actually requires industry to get there.
2: Well, it is a formal target, it's government policy. It's not legislated, but it's a formal government policy. One gentle sort of uh, uh, disagreement is it didn't come out of the EMO plan, it came out of power in Australia. So we we, uh, worked out the impact of rewiring the nation and other policies and it showed 82%.
1: What else did that modelling show us?
3: Will we still get that $275 off by 2025?
2: Well, that, of course, was uh, a projection. It was very similar to what AEMO uh, had, which gave us some comfort that we're on the right track, right, but they're actually separate processes, which led to the same result. But it is official government policy. And in terms of how we're doing it, there's a range of things. There's rewiring the nation, you know, there's no transmission without transmission. We all know that, so that's very important. We're getting on with that as fast as we can. Uh, We've got the capacity investment mechanism, which will unleash a lot. Um, You know, it'll it'll unleash um, uh, $10 billion of investment based on our uh, calculations or six gigawatts across the grid. That isn't enough to get 82, but it's a very big contribution. And the fact all the um, big renewable energy investors from around the world, I meet with all the chief executives, either when they're visiting here or when I'm in their countries, say to me, the fact that you've legislated the 43 and you've got 82 as a very clear target as government policy, gives us the certainty to invest in your country. So a number of them have said to me that they now regard Australia as their key market.
1: Uh, Certainly I've had a lot of talks. Uh, Your uh, climate minister was in the US. Uh, Matt, a few months ago, talking about some of the innovations.
2: Is 82 ambitious? Yes, it is. It is very ambitious. Is it achievable? Absolutely. I know there's, you know, it's fashionable at the moment to say it's not achievable. I do not accept that. We've got the capital. We've got the policy. We've got the technology. We've got the pipeline. I want to see more of that pipeline moving to final investment decision. You said that investment over the last six months hasn't been fast enough. Why? a number of challenges on investment.
3: I'll just ask you a very simple question because I understand that with such a massive task at hand that optimism is an important part of it, you can't go around saying that we're not going to get there.
1: We are not going to get there.
2: Mega universe heat death, that one should work.
3: Is there enough energy coming in to replace that which is leaving?
2: We're we're doing well, but I want to do better. Mm -hmm. We're doing well, but I want to do better. I want to see more of that very big pipeline, which everybody acknowledges exists. (laughs) A quick quote from
1: the Electricity Statement of Opportunities. Reliability gaps are forecast in all mainland NEM regions when considering only those developments that meet AEMO's commitment criteria.
2: Of investment that's coming down the road, I want to see more of it reach financial, final investment decisions sooner to get connection approval and, if appropriate, environmental approval. And we have various schemes in place to do so and we're doing more and will do more.
3: One of the biggest uncertainties is around the transmission lines that need to be built to carry the energy. Now, you said earlier this year that a social licence is essential for this rollout. What exactly is a social licence in this case?
2: A social licence is community support, Mm. is community permission, if you like, to have this infrastructure running through communities, particularly rural and regional communities.
1: So what happens when there's no social licence, when the community rejects the government's mandates?
2: that 81% of those cameras have now been damaged.
1: I'm not suggesting that farmers will go out and destroy transmission lines, but there's a confrontation brewing.
2: The government needs to take it seriously. Obviously, to move uh, renewable energy around our very, very big grid. Does it, the, does it
3: also mean that, that the government has a social licence in the end to deny an individual landowner if, if for the greater good? Well, that's not what I was
2: referring to, but of, no. course, but of course there are in rules the and regulations in place. But... The key point is this. What do you mean
3: by that, rules and regulations? You mean
2: in the end you can... Well, there are are processes in place. Powerlink is
1: Queensland's state-owned transmission company. They have a, a brochure called Understanding the Network Development Process. From that brochure, I quote, Powerlink prefers to negotiate with landholders on compensation for the granting of an easement, depending on the individual circumstances, and in order to ensure the timely delivery of projects, Powerlink may also begin the legislative process under the Acquisition of Land Act to resume an easement over the part of the property required for the transmission infrastructure. The Queensland Government Minister, responsible for this legislation, makes the
2: decision as to whether the proposed resumption should proceed. But my view is, this is absolutely essential infrastructure. I want to see better community engagement. I want to see better community consultation. It hasn't been good enough. Communities know their communities better than you or I do. Mm. They have good ideas about where the transmission lines go. In my experience, talking to communities, as I do a lot, very rare has somebody said to me, look, we don't think these transmission lines are necessary. Um, Very rare has somebody said to me, oh, we don't think climate change is r- real or we don't No, but they are energy. they are
3: unquestionably a blight. So, I guess, in the end, but the question have, is, if there is really significant resistance to them, will you consider putting them underground? Well, is that what should be happening? Well,
2: uh, they say, we think there's a better way, better routes, better way, of, mm-hmm. better way of dealing with it. Undergrounding does come up. And in some small instances, it's appropriate mm-hmm. for particular, particular locations. But it is far from the answer. It is very, very, very expensive. Uh, That means, you know, an impact on energy bills in due course or somebody's got to pay. And also, it's not an environmental no-brainer either. You know, digging big trenches and Mm. laying, laying wires in sensitive areas is not necessarily a straightforward or simple or correct answer either. If
1: underground cables are no good for the environment, then overhead transmission lines, wind and solar farms, they must be pretty good for the environment, right? The Minister continues...
3: Let me come to Snowy. You've made it clear that Snowy 2.0, obviously today we've been reading a lot about cost blowouts, but you've made it clear that it is a a project that's going to stay as part of the energy mix that we need it. Um, Who's going to pick up the bill, though, for that cost blowout? If these are mistakes made by the contractors, is it going to be the taxpayer that pays for that or the contractor? We're changing
2: the contract because the current contract is not fit for purpose. It has not rewarded... Good results. Whose fault is that? Uh, well, uh, previous Snowy management entered into that contract, and it is clearly not fit for purpose going forward. And I have accepted, with my fellow shareholder, Minister Gallagher, the advice that we should change that contract going forward. Very strong advice, that if we didn't change the contract, the project would take even longer and cost even more. Very strong advice to us. Uh, so, Snowy, the new Snowy management has renegotiated those and, contracts.
1: And Former head of Snowy Hydro, Paul Broad, on ABC Radio last year mere days after he quit Snowy, mere weeks after Chris Bowen uh, entered the fray as Energy Minister.
2: So would you go as far as to say that Minister Chris Bowen and others who share his view are being naive as to uh, how this might play out if if they make the decisions that clearly they are uh, at the moment?
0: Well, I'm not sure it's
2: naive. I think it's just political, to be honest. I think it's just a a political game that gets played. Um, the reality is um, Liddell power stations closing. You need more gas p- uh, by power stations. We need lots more of them. Paul, had the relationship, had your relationship with Minister Chris Bowen become untenable? Well, I only met him once, uh, to be frank, And but I think in his head it might have.
3: Picking up the costs, is that us or them?
2: Well, uh, we are ensuring going forward that... Poor performance, whether on budget or cost, uh, is penalised. And those by the costs are now, who
3: where do those well at the moment?
2: End? It's a at the moment it's a contract where there's no incentive for the for the joint venture partners. So that to means actually the taxpayer
3: deliver. will be stepping in. At some well, point?
2: well, the Snowy is of course a company mm. in government ownership, but a company, and we have equity in that company, and we can consider putting more equity in. Uh, Snowy can absorb some of the costs themselves, and we can also consider putting more equity in. But these are matters which, as we've said, we've. Very transparently acknowledge this. Chris
1: Bowen just transparently spent a minute and a half failing to answer the question, but of course, the costs of Snowy Hydro will fall on the taxpayers. Firstly, to build it, then to operate it, and in our bills
2: forever. Minister Gallagher and I, the two shareholders, received this report the day before yesterday mm. out the door in, to go to the public as it should. The previous government knew there were long delays and hid it deliberately from the Australian people.
3: Just one question on uh, energy bills. Obviously, there, there were measures to help people with their energy bills. You did make a promise about $275 by 2025. Mm. Are you going to be able to keep that price? We're not walking
2: away from our intention to get as much renewables into the system, uh, which reduces prices. Believe it or not? Not. I don't believe it. And that, the Liberal Party that was doesn't a straight question it. about a number Renew- though, yeah, and we, and not we, just
3: lower, but 275. And we, and we stand
2: by our plans to get more renewables into the system to reduce I'm bills. I'm just
3: going to hold you to that, mm. not just to well, get you, more in, but the question is, are you going to yeah, stick to $275 we are, we are, well,
2: well, that, by 2025? That is, that is what the modelling showed, and we still believe that renewable energy is the cheapest form of energy. Yeah, people can judge us by 2025 as to how much renewable energy we've got into the system. The Liberal Party likes to say, you know, the promise was for last week. Of course, it was the result of modelling.
0: Stop using your stove, you capitalist. In
2: uh, 2021, still a very clear, it was still a very clear, in 20, in, a very in, clear at, promise in and, your in manifesto. 2020, in 2021, uh, which we were very clear upfront about, and we remain clear and upfront about.
3: So. That's a maybe, wait and see. Uh, So far, you're sticking to it.
2: Well, you're asking me what energy prices will be in 2025. Mm -hmm. I'm telling you what our policy is. And I'm asking you if you're going to keep an election promise. is to point out that renewable energy is the cheapest form of energy, and we stand by getting as much of that into the system, not only to reduce emissions, uh, but also to reduce prices.
3: Chris Bowen, thank you very much indeed for joining us.
2: Always a pleasure, Sarah. I'd like
0: someone, someone, just to map out some basic things about how we're going to do things in a net zero world. You will die soon.
1: David Carlin, welcome to the Baseline Podcast. Hi, Ben. How are you going? Good, thanks, mate. Thank you very much for joining me. And it's, it's a little bit short notice because uh we chatted about some various submissions uh particularly on isp and gen cost etc but before we get launched into all that do you want to give us a, a 30 second breakdown on who you are and why you care about the uh, electricity system
0: yeah okay uh, ben i've got a background initially in um mining industry work for what is now rio Tinto, uh and in that uh I, I bought power for the aluminium company called Camalco. so And at the end of that period, we bought the Gladstone Power Station. So I I became very interested in power. I then went and worked into investment banking, uh, spent a lot of time financing power stations, uh, particularly uh, baseload power stations on market risk. Um, So, again, I've kept very interested in this. Um, I've been following all these reports um, Finkel, uh, NEG right through. And uh, last year, Bob Pritchard from the uh, um, Energy Policy Institute of Australia asked me to have have a serious look at uh, the GenCost report. So when I got involved in that, I was horrified about what I saw, and it sort of started from there.
1: Oh, thanks for that. Your background certainly gives you some insights into how the system works, uh, particularly possibly from engineering and also the economic side as well. And uh, I dare say you're not scared of a spreadsheet or two.
0: No, no, I'm a, I've got a PhD in econometrics. So, I, you know, num- numbers are my bread and butter, in fact. You know, like all of us, it's probably uh, if in trouble, I go for the numbers. So, no, I'm very interested. And I think um, the interesting thing about the electricity system is a lot of people don't understand it. Um, and the thing you learn when you're financing power stations is that electricity is very hard to store and doesn't travel well. It's quite a unique sort of commodity and needs to be treated in that way as opposed to financing a copper mine or a manufacturing business or or, or whatever where you've got stockpiles and in, in particular stockpiles to to ease ease the burden from an engineering perspective you yeah you start with the
1: load and you work out how much supply you need uh, and then you've got a to- then you've got to balance that against the economics of it and do you build, oversupply initially and then wait for the load to catch up you know there's, there's a there's a fair bit of forwards thinking that goes on in that in that space. absolutely
0: and uh, the management of the thing day to day uh is very critical
1: yeah mm, excellent so there's a there's a bit of a storm brewing around gen cost and uh i'm i'm somewhat pleased to be in, involved in it even peripherally uh you have you've been involved in this for a little while and you've had a couple of submissions and i believe uh you wrote a letter to jim chalmers not too long ago what's your i guess from a high level what's what's the overall problem we're facing here with these uh with these reports
0: yeah yeah the 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 whole energy policy and the reason i wrote to mr chalmers the treasurer the whole of his budget is built on the premise that firmed and perhaps your audience knows what firm mean backed up supported made reliable i could almost say made dispatchable Firm renewables, solar and wind, forget hydro, solar and wind are the lowest cost form of new generation. And so the politicians have been presented or believe in or been told this wonderful world where we can reduce our emissions of CO2, but at the same time, it's the cheapest way for new generation. So it's a wonderful world for the politician. It's win-win, and it is a myth. Yeah, so... so on, yeah
1: that's that's similar to how i see it as well so when i when i hear about wind and solar the cheapest side of energy i say okay there's there's you could say that a solar farm uh is relatively cheap to build compared to say a nuclear or a coal or or even a gas power station uh you could say similar for wind and you could you could argue that there's been cost reductions although maybe not so much anymore um but that's not the whole story is it building a generator is not the retail cost that people see
0: uh no and and, and people want that intermittent wind and solar to be converted into you know 24/7 and that's the hard bit and um I, you know, a couple of years ago, gave a talk to a group on the cost of renewables, and they all kind of got angry. And, and I said, "So let's just sit down and think. We've got a one megawatt flat load, and we're going to do it with solar panels. How many solar panels would you need, and how many batteries? Without going into the details, you end up very quickly with five or six one megawatt, uh, five or six megawatts of solar panels." three or four megawatts of battery to supply that one megawatt load that you could supply with a diesel generator running 24-7. And it was in that discussion that just dawned on me that the average person has been told this and they just don't understand how that variable wind and solar gets to become reliable when it gets to their house. I think they are feeling a bit when they look at their bill uh, and they see the bits of the bill, you know, the, the, the energy the, the transmission, high voltage, dead distribution, low voltage, the, the thing that AMO and all those forget about. And then there is the um, the green taxes on top of it. I think they are starting to realise now how, how much all this is costing.
1: Yeah, and you kind of wonder how it's how it's gotten to this point because in, intuitively people would think, well, if we've got to build a whole lot of stuff, surely it's going to cost a lot more. But the the narrative is kind of glossing over that and going back to the uh the these these sort of how do i call them foundational reports so you've got CSIRO's gen cost report which is meant to give some kind of a uh, fully integrated system cost of electricity and then or does it and then you've got the integrated system plan which uses that now I'm gonna I'm gonna break in here and i am read you a couple of quotes from these guys which I pulled out and in my last uh, spectator piece so Paul Graham responded to one of claire lehman's pieces in the australian and he said he said a few words but these this is a direct quote the report does not provide the cumulative cost of all investments up to 2030 because this is addressed in a separate project called the integrated system plan of which gen cost is one of many inputs now i know you've you'll have a fair bit to say on that but let me do the amo uh words as well now amo come in their own media release said the isp demonstrates that new renewables with new transmission firmed with hydro batteries and gas is the lowest cost way to supply electricity to Australian homes and businesses as coal-fired generation retires so in those two statements from those two organizations the average person would go sure okay well these guys are to be trusted they must be they they're not paid to lie to us what's what's going wrong here
0: yeah, and they are political statements. They're not. They're not economic statements, financial statements, and engineering statements. Um, the the, fir- the first one, and I think we we know we know the problem with the first one because that character well has admitted that he only worries about what's above what he calls his base case. So his base case at the moment is is seeing Australia go to a fifty six percent renewables, which by the way excludes rooftop and and, and hydro. So it's just solar. It's but it's. Um, utility scale, solar and wind. Um, And he said, he he, he doesn't count any of the cost of transmission and batteries, gas turbines, pump hydro, to get you to 56% with a reliable system. He just looks at going from 56 to 60, 70, 80 or 90% and, and comes out with the conclusion that in that space, uh, renewables that allow us firm renewables or integrated. He uses the word integrated. What I think, the more I think about it, is a very clever word um, because it doesn't t- say the firm word, um, and that, that's, that's all he's looked at, um, and which has been then grasped on particularly by Mr. Bowen, the energy minister, who who doesn't say integrated. He then just immediately translates to firm. So and and it's, and it's never been corrected. Well, he ha- he's only been corrected lately with Clare, and he's kind of. Backed off a lot. We might come back to that. The AMO statement, you know, I'm not here to question people's motives, whatever, is wrong. Um, they don't tell you that cost. They never tell you the cost. They have a uh, bill, programs, and graphs and data galore, but they never actually tell tell you what it is. Um, and there's no um, um, what what's now coming out. The subsequent article by Claire's is that even in their sort of base case. They don't attribute cost to a lot of the supporting uh, capacity. Uh, for instance, they don't include the cost of Snowy 2.0 in the analysis. So to say you've got a free Snowy 2.0, and boy, boy, these renewables—they're fitting into the system really let low cost—is is, well, it, 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 it's wrong. And um, there's, you know, there's going to be a, a day of reckoning with all this. I think. Uh, one of the motivations I've had, and I've seen plenty of ministers uh, on earlier expeditions, uh, I saw Mr. Morrison on the National Energy Guarantee, and he told me I didn't know what I was talking about. Um, I met Josh Frydenberg on several occasions, similar sort of, not as bluntly as that, but you know, vaguely, it's just all politics. And I think that's the point. Um, in political matters like the deficit, the unemployment rate, inflation, you, you can sort of you know wrap it on about this and that. And it's, it's not going to come to a crisis. When, when when and if if and when we have continual you know blackouts i think these politicians are really going to be in trouble so and and then, then the the people will turn on on a csiro and, and on amo and, and ask them more fundamental questions. and uh, the the uh, the head of amo can then sit out and tell us the basis of his statement that uh, you know renewables supported by transmission et cetera, are the lowest cost
1: David, you're painting a very grim picture there, not just for consumers, but for the uh the people who are, I guess putting their names and reputations on the line and maybe their careers in uh in putting these things out and not not coming together and sort of addressing these criticisms correctly because you've you've submitted um, responses to AMO and CSIRO and pointed out to them and said, Uh, and you've got a beautiful graph here I've got in front of me, which is a diagram diagrammatic depiction of the integration methodology, which is great. And, uh, in, in words, it's, it's easy to say, oh yeah, well, we've, we, we start from 2030 and we, we think it's going to cost this much to add all this stuff in. But when you look at what's actually required, uh, there's, there's a lot of spending to go on there, isn't there?
0: Yes. And my subsequent. I think, what, two weeks ago, um, uh, I I got really um, kind of sick of um, GENCOS. So when I wrote the report in in September, they came back in in December. And um, (laughs) it's a bit like the Samuel Johnson thing. You know, when you're in a room full of people, do you keep your mouth shut and let them think you're a fool? Or do you open it and leave them in, no doubt? They came back a bit like uh, Mr Graham's letter to The Australian and, and just confirmed everything I'd read, I'd done. And 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 I kind of wasn't sure of all of it, and they came out and confirmed it. So on the basis of that, I produced that graph in the submission in in February. But it's it's all about, and and, and then they came back again, and I got my own little, little bit of the appendix in the GenCOS final report, which came out in July. And they keep saying, I don't understand. And so on that basis, I wrote another paper and said, I I ask you specifically how much does it cost to get from 20% today to 56%? How much does it cost to integrate that additional renewable capacity by 2030? Don't tell me I'm not interested in one above 60, 70, 80. That's a an issue. And you went you went
1: one better. You didn't just leave it to them. You said, well, here's my estimate.
0: Tell Uh, me what. Yeah, it's almost frustration. And then I put an estimate out of the two components, and the cost of leaving out is in excess of 60 billion. And I suspect that's a that's a. uh, an underestimate and then there's at least 6 billion dollars a year as subsidies just for the utility scale renewables forget the rooftop stuff so and this is this cost. is just your,
1: that 60 billion is your estimate just on the the
0: CSIRO uh CSIRO and, and tell the us their base case they say what's in that bit they leave out and so I got independent estimates the classic being snowy um i i put 12 billion in i put 12 billion in when the rumours were around, you know, there was six at um, Senate estimates last November, then there were stories going around 10. So I said, oh, look, it's going to go up by 20%. It's already gone up by 20%. And they might not even build it. So if they don't build that thing, the AMO ISP collapses because it's just lost you know, 2,600 megawatts of pumped hydro. Pull that out of the system and, uh, you know, it, 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 we, we won't be able to move here shortly for diesel generators. I'm less optimistic. I,
1: I think they will build it and I think it's going to be a huge white elephant. Um, because Mr. Bowen's already said that uh he can't see a reason. Uh, it's gone too far, I guess he said, admitted. Now he's gone and committed to Marinus Link as well, which even even the Greens, so Christine Milne, Broad Brown, etc., they hate it. I and the
0: Tasmanians again, another massive cost blowout. I mean <laughs> if they, If these were private sector organizations, you know the board of Snowy, Snowy Hydro, you've seen a project go up by a factor of six. So you're on the board of you know a major manufacturing company and you're building a new facility and your your estimate of the capital required is out by a factor of six, you'd all have to resign. Shareholders would would tear the place down. And this it just seems to be going on. I mean it's, it's yeah all in the name of closing baseload power plants of any fuel you know, coal, brown. Black gas, nuclear, whatever, uh, to drive these in, and it's all again been built on the premise uh, that this is the cheapest as well as the most environmentally friendly.
1: Do you think that we will see, actually, see blackouts in real life
0: as a result? Well, I'm, of I'm not as close to it. Clearly, Amo Amo and the Electricity Statement of Opportunities for the last three years has been calling for, um, you know, a, a, a pinch point coming in the mid in the mid 2020s all associated with a raring and possibly uh, your lawn uh, and and there might be one in Queensland goes now um, so on the one hand they're telling us the ISP and they are retiring these power stations ISP and everything's growing lovely and you know, we're two hours a year loss of you know, unsupplied energy and then they go to the real world and of course what's not happening is either renewables aren't coming in as anywhere near as quickly. And B, the transmission and the batteries, you know, there's hardly any batteries, um, the pumped hydros, they're not happening. I'd like to read out a
1: quote from a, another submission on the ISP from a fellow called Simon Bartlett. You might be familiar with his name.
0: I know, Simon. Uh,
1: the, the quote is, <laughs> the driver of the different proposed scenarios appears to be the rate of
0: change in government policies. Rather than the rate of change in the external environment. <laughs> yeah, good on you, Simon. Yeah, he worked for the QEC many years ago, and he buy power from them, but uh, and 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 a power station. Uh, absolutely, the reality again with electricity, it catches up with you. We can't import oil or import something. You've got to have. you know, it doesn't travel well, uh, and it's hard to store. And this is the-, the
1: the the energy security debates in there as well, because we're already seeing. Um, diplomats and foreign companies say impacts korea uh you know japan and korea who depend on us for energy security and this is just in our exports of gas and and potentially coal uh nothing even worse in our in our if we shut off the gas etc i know that's slightly different to the energy electricity system but if we if we tax it out of existence and stop developing gas and those countries uh energy securities undermine itself in our, in our domestic situation, if our electricity costs are very high and we're less reliable, well, people will stop, companies will stop moving here because it's, and then you've got this complete decline of our, of our ec- economic system, right? It all, it all hinges on
0: energy. Yeah. Australia has been built on low cost uh, energy and our exports of, of, of coal, um, aluminium you know, congealed electricity and what's even more disturbing is, and, and Simon's right, that if if you stood back from this, you'd have a, you'd, you'd analyze, you know, um, what's good for country, what do we want to do, and then what's the energy system that's going to deliver that. If we want to be the world's lowest emitter of CO2, good, put, put that in and look, but also t- tell you how much it's going, it's, it's going to cost. And I think, um, People have just lost, the, and it's all now been driven by politics. Both CSIRO and AMO start with the proposition of net zero 2050, and they build a system based on that policy, and lo and behold, they end up where where we're getting to because no other technologies are allowed in. And it's just really, and Alex um, Coram, you would have seen a professor wrote an op-ed in in Australia a few weeks ago, he said it's as if they don't care what technologies uh, emerge as long as they're wind and solar and that they're hoping... That um, you know there will be technological breakthroughs in these particular technologies that aren't available in any other to get them. The other thing I'd say is that you talk about energy costs. You know, I think it was Mr. Bowen, it might have been someone else. Let's become you know we're we're a producer of uh, the I mean, spotter, you know, the lithium concentrate, um, which we export offshore to get made into batteries. Let's make the batteries here. Well, what do you need to make batteries? You need low-cost energy. So, we, we, you know, they, they just let's make batteries. Well, we've killed, you know, the, the, the comparative advantage we had in energy. So, you can't make batteries here. Yeah? And goodness knows what, what we're going to end up doing. Um, yeah. So, there's just a, you know, a, an unvirtuous circle here of kill the energy, look out for the new industries that are going to come. New industries want low energy costs. They're not going to come. So,
1: an example of that in real life is unfolding right now in Germany where tesla pulled out of uh, a gigafactory in germany you've got uh, chemical companies like basf uh, automobile manufacturers like volkswagen either halting uh, planned expansions and upgrades or deliberately putting them outside germany because of the energy yeah. cost yeah
0: yeah and they're going to india and malaysia and not to malaysia but too low cost energy but you know they're going to in india and china and, that's-
1: and the the common the commonality between countries with low cost energy is they all use the
0: coal unashamedly I just took words in my mouth which are driven by an, uh, ironically our coal
1: yeah yeah somewhat so one of the one of the things I'll go back to gen cost because um one of the one of the things I've found in their analysis uh is they they like to tip the scales or they appear to tip the scales in favor of their preferred outcome wind and solar so and one of them is capacity factors and this is this is one where uh, Mr. Graham responded to you uh, directly. Um, so he they use like a forty one percent for capacity factor in twenty nineteen, and forty and increase it linearly up to forty four percent twenty fifty. But and that's that's very very optimistic considering the long term capacity factor in Australia is you know tr- trying to get to thirty percent. Um, but when you look at how they treat the capacity factor of baseload generation, they're entirely pessimistic they 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 assign arbitrary artificial capacity factors based on policy rather than the capability of the technology um you know this isn't this isn't fair this isn't this isn't uh, kosher.
0: what are they trying to do here well I, I, I he didn't really respond to my point again um again you should start with the technical capacity and capability of the various units and baseload plants you don't build there's a very high capital relatively high capital cost you run them as baseload plants. What they're doing is they're using the market to tell them that most coal plants are running between 60 and 70%. Therefore, anyone who would build a new coal plant would clearly only be able to run it at 60 or 70% because he can't get into the market because of the renewables. So as I pointed out to them, th- th- this actually makes the proposition that renewables are the lowest cost unfalsifiable, because the more renewables, the less uh, the lower the capacity factors of the base load plants, the higher their units cost, therefore the more renewables, therefore and, and you, know, as a, this, you know, it just is a, a fundamental philosophical problem. But again, because they do tip the scales, not in a sort of, well, they're quite open about it. They all their scenarios are designed to produce net zero 2050. Therefore, you, you must drive these things out. And um, and Graham, in his response, he responded to me in, I think in December last year, came back and said he couldn't see how a baseload plant would run much above 60. percent given the need to, to increase the, uh, you know, the, the amount of renewables. Okay, <laughs> that, that, that's, you know, why bother going through the exercise? So I think, um, uh, you know, it's a particularly harmful um, way to run the country, but it, it is backwards that we set the policy within, model the policy and the, and the models tell us the policy is right.
1: How how would, uh, in your opinion, if, if you suddenly had a change of heart at these bureaucracies and they realized that the, um, the public was getting wind of some of these shenanigans and maybe it had a change of CEO or maybe you had a bit of an organisation change. What what could
0: they do uh, next to re- address this imbalance? Okay, well, I'd, I'd again recommend Alex Coram's article. What an economist would do, he'd stand back and work out what's in the best, we call it welfare economist, you know, to, to maximise the welfare of the country. And that may be coming from low cost energy. It may, may be coming from low emissions. But it may be coming from rain. But you put them in, you start there. You don't start with the the the, uh, the world is low emissions. A, a target, yeah, an ideological yeah, target. Yeah, a, a target. So you'd stop, and AMO would be building, um, would have an unconstrained. I um, got into trouble. Someone in The Guardian wrote an article about me where an AMO submission I made last year um, said you should run a, a coal only scenario. The reason you should run a coal-only scenario is to tell you the cost of the emissions, the value to you of the emissions, because that will show you just how much value you're giving up by not having coal and having other. And, and they should run all sorts of scenarios with nuclear and, and and whatever. Then politicians can sit back and say, Well, no, we're pushing on with we're going to reduce 1.2% of the world's emissions by 43%. Yes, and it's going to cost you, you know, 40 billion a year or something. But that's good because. It's been to the people. They've voted, and that's what they want in the story. The way we're doing that, you're not even allowed. well. The guy at the Guardian criticised me for even suggesting a coal-only scenario. So it's it's very hard to sort of. De-
1: they're not. They're not really acting in in good faith. These people. They're not interested in fair criticism and open debate. They they just want to focus on their targets and shutting down the coal. But they.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, they don't. They don't want the answer. They don't want the answer that. This is hellishly ex- expensive, and I, and all my, and I'm quite an apolitical person. I've never been interested much in politics, but at the end of all my submissions, I say, look, I'm not saying you shouldn't do this, or that it's not a worthwhile thing to do. What I'm saying is, you need to understand the cost of the various options before you rush off and do one of these things. And yeah and i think a lot of people are now well certainly um are finding their new their, their latest power bills for instance there's yeah, now but become you the said
1: topic. you said they um th- and by they i guess i'm i'm sort of putting in the media the academics the yeah no the um, media the, the, the bureaucrats the, the, the
0: bureaucrats they, uh, you, who, you said yeah. they
1: don't want the answer um but the answer is going to be there for us anyway in our bills like you said
0: that was the point I made earlier. Yeah, if it's the low inflation rate or low unemployment or low budget deficit, you can rabbit it on about that. Or the answer is coming, and it's probably is more quickly the cost. I mean, it's so evident. We've seen the graph in that um, submission that I put to, um, to Cost. There's a graph of um, retail electricity prices, uh, prices straight out of the CPI, so there's an element just electricity, and the share of renewables in the national market. And the and being an econometrician, I know the correlation isn't causation, but there is a very strong relationship. That as they've driven in these renewables with subsidies, and that subsidy is that fourth element of the retail electricity prices. Prices are out of control, and now, of course, what's happening is the energy component at the bottom's now gone blown up on them. So, yep,
1: I think the um, I think the the answer between the risk of blackouts, the the lack of in of private investment um and we're seeing a sudden rapid increase in uh state and Mr Bowen spending as well so we just had Chris Minns announce a couple of billion Chris Bowen's announced Marinus link and then he had 3 billion for WA Queensland like is, these auctions uh, going
0: now these mythical auctions for the dispatchable green energy
1: yeah yeah uh we've got capacity mechanisms we've got price caps i mean the whole the whole thing is uh dare i say it a shit show <laughs>
0: um uh I my would, old boss uh, would say it's a bugger's muddle but he was a Queenslander <laughs> <laughs> I don't
1: I don't think that there's any quick solutions to the, to the messer and even, even if you suddenly had uh, a change of government and they came in in one day and they said boom we need to uh we need to make some things change first of all I don't think that change is going to be very fast because you've got all these uh, contracts that have to play out for the the wind and solar that exists now you've got a whole bunch of rooftop solar that it, no one's just going to take it off their roofs uh, and you've got sort of guarantees on feed-in tariffs and things so there's a lot going on there which just has to be has to be lived with right we can't change that in the short term we could you could you could so- soon enough implement policies that would cut the subsidies cut the spending you could change some rules which say limit um exports from rooftop solar etc and that would force some changes over time but you don't want to be too disruptive because that 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 rapid change trying to achieve a, a better goal is also slightly ideological you need to kind of get to a better a system that can sort it out rather than just trying to uh, arbitrarily sort it out based on someone else's so-called great ideas right um and i'm i'm, I'm putting myself in the bucket of having concerns and some ideas, but I certainly wouldn't, um, put it on myself that I own all the good ideas. So one thing I thought would be great to do, and I'd I'd happy to get your feedback and criticism on this idea is the the semi-scheduled generator participant in the national electricity market. Um, it's unconstrained at the moment. So you can have wind and solar up to a, a gigawatt or whatever. And obviously that that's a big problem. One thing I would do would be to Limit that uh, semi-scheduled participant category to a small nameplate value, and say, "Okay, you got five years, ten years, whatever, to get to that." That would. Um, what do you, What do you think of that idea? Would that be something that would help or hinder getting back to reality? Um,
0: since uh, 2017 or so, um, um when I first started seeing Josh Friedenberg. We kept telling him he's got to come up with a mechanism that allows the coal plants, basically the base load plants, to run at min-gen min levels. Because once you start, ch- and what well, was obviously apparently coming was the you know this hollowing out of the, the the load during the day where the rooftop solar's on, so you're not seeing them. You know, it's behind the meter. Um, and then you know, it is massive. I mean, South Australia is like an adventure playground. During the day, its demand can be 400 megawatts on a windy, sunny day. At 8 o'clock that night, it's 3,000, 2,500, and you're just getting incredible things. So the, the, the dispatch preference, implicitly given to rooftop solar, explicitly given to renewables because, um, in a way, their contracts work. A wind, wind farm standard wind farm contracts is a number of megawatt hours, gigawatt hours over a year. That's so not, not a half hour to five minutes, but over a year. And when it's windy, they want it, they have to be on because you know the funds and need to get their money because they need to get paid. So, um, uh, I, th- I think it'd be a very good idea to make the um, um, you know. Uh, Wind and solar back them off to make sure that all all your coal plants are running at min gen levels, which means offloading wind and solar, and everybody has a oh, not going to have any money. Well,
1: I would I would go a the- step further, and I'd say, well, you can't you can't connect to the grid unless you can guarantee your output at some level. If you can't guarantee your output, you're gonna you're gonna be constrained in your nameplate capacity.
0: Yeah, yeah, and and that is the initial I, my understanding from a politician who used to used to go and talk to in those that when the National Energy Guarantee was uh, put up to the party room, so Finkel gone, National Energy Guarantee, this great scheme, um, the the renewables would have to bring their own backup. This is, I think, it's called like an Ontario model, a Canadian model. And actually, is alive and well in Queensland with the interaction between the Boyne Island smelter and the Gladstone Power Station and the grid. But you know, um, cut a long story short, the smelter's supply is, is backed up in the power station by what's called a reserve margin, the good old-fashioned reserve margin. And you need something like that. You just cannot turn up with an intermittent source of power and get preference. And then when it's not there, people have got to scramble around and back you up. And, and this is in, an essence, is, is in an essence a problem. So if I'm, you're a wind farm and you're bringing a, um, a gigawatt of wind, you have to bring you know, 300 megawatts of, of the fast start engines or battery, whatever it is, to, to back yourself up. And of course, it just drives. The, it is, in a, in a sense, the, the gen cost cost. It just right blows down the water.
1: David, in a, in the few minutes we've got left, I wanted to sort of get your thoughts on what what do you think is going to unfold in the next, say, take us out to twenty thirty. What do you what do you see is going to happen?
0: Um, I think we will have. Um, I think you'll see all the coal plants kept kept uh, open. I will see a lot of subsidies back into that. A lot of screaming and yelling. Um, I can see delays in all the transmission. The battery snowy 2.0 uh, like in two thousand and nineteen. I can see um, our Greco uh, semi trailers with the uh, two or three megawatt units on the back of them, connected to diesel fired um, to diesel trucks supporting the system which was the case in two thousand and nineteen. Um, it, it was only for COVID that demand got dropped. Uh, that we would we would have had the summer about to have back in 2020. So you, you're aware that in Port Adelaide and at the Adelaide Oval and at various strategic... Um,
1: Half a billion uh, dollars' worth of diesel generators.
0: ...generation, switch yards down the Mornington Peninsula Victoria and the regional areas around Melbourne. Yeah, that's the way you reduce CO2. So I think there's going to be, when uh, you call it a shit show, I a so bugger's muddle, they'll just scramble to keep the lights on.
1: What about uh, government intervention? More
0: of that? Well, um, in a sense, it'll have to be intervention to keep the lights on. Yeah, because one one thing we haven't even talked about, and it's probably Stephen Wilson, who we both know, you know, the national energy uh, market is an absolute misnomer. It's not a market; it's a set of rules. And even the uh, CEO of uh, AEMO says this market will not pull forth the sorts of investments we need to, to keep the system reliable. So, it,
1: yeah, it. I I feel exactly the same way uh but I think what we'll see is governments uh state and federal like you said supporting the coal fired power stations and I think the there'll be a, once the the owners of the big coal fired power stations realize that this is this is on the cards now the models out there we've got your lawn loyang a now we've got a raring they're all going to put their hands up and say oh we're going to close
0: I think origin were very clever and I, for a great person I didn't invest in them so they, they could just um um yeah, you know, make, make, make them big up here to keep it roaring. Up.
1: Well, David, uh, thanks very much for the chat today. I don't know if we've solved the world's problems, but uh, hopefully we've exposed a few. <laughs>
0: we cleared our chest. Of it. <laughs>
1: yeah. Great, Ben. Enjoyed it. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in a week. In the meantime, if you like the podcast, hit
0: the like button, subscribe to your friends.